Welcome to another episode of Chris Reed's Book. And welcome back to this episode. This week, in episode 44, I've got to update my little note to myself, episode 44, we will be reading through uh, two of the appendix articles of my first book, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. Uh, in fact, I'll be reading through the first appendix uh, article, uh, appendix A, article on LNH, titled LNH Bar, Your Grandpa's Neighborhood Pub, and part of Appendix B, A Hero's Report. If that sounds odd to you, you're perhaps tuning into this podcast for the first time and you're not sure what I'm talking about, welcome to Chris Reed's book. My name is Chris Pullman, and this podcast is me reading to you, my listener, chapters out of my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. Uh, this is a serial podcast. I record these in order. So if this is your first episode, I highly recommend that you go back and listen to all the episodes in their episode order, because that is also the chapter order of the book. I'm going to be re-recording some of those episodes now that I've edited ahead, and uh, I'm also taking a little time off to spend with my new daughter. She is um, eight weeks old today. So not two months yet, but eight weeks old today, which is pretty cool. Uh, If you hear a little bit of crying in the background, that would be her, Ryan Pullman. Uh, Also, just uh, in case anybody should happen to listen to this in the near future, Congratulations to the U.S. women's soccer team on making it to the final round of the 2015 uh, FIFA World Cup. Just watched that before recording this. That was a pretty exciting game. 2-0 against Germany, so way to go, women. Uh, You're kind of making me want to actually start watching soccer, which is something, because I'm an American football fan, specifically the Packers. I grew up in and around Green Bay. I apologize for all the uh, other NFL team fans out there for that comment. But anyway, this week's episode. Um, So again, if this is your first episode, I highly recommend you go back and listen to the other episodes in this podcast series. If you are in fact caught up, let's get right into it. This will be episode 44 starting with LNH Bar, your grandpa's neighborhood pub. This is the article that the uh, main character of the book, James Hall, wrote. This is where the book actually started out with him doing some research at LNH. So this is actually the article that he wrote. Laura and Hank's bar, known locally as LNH, has been a landmark of Ashwabanan, a suburb of New Chicago, Olympus Mons Province, Mars, for over a century. Indeed, many of its regular patrons will tell you that LNH was and continues to be the cornerstone of this mid-sized workers' community. Here, old friends come to have a drink after work, gather to play in the dark bridge, cribbage, or pool league, stop for a Friday repast, or simply drop in for some company. At first glance, LNH isn't much, but once you sit down and begin to take in its atmosphere, its inner worth shows through. Opened some 203 years ago by Hank Craig Sr., the father of the current owner and proprietor, LNH originally sat on the outskirts of Ashwabanan. Over the years, as so often happens in a workers' community, the city sprawled, eventually growing to meet and then encompass the tavern. Throughout the years, despite the city changing around it, LNH has stayed much the same. Half its size is taken up by a sizable dining room, the other half by its bar, games, and kitchen. Ever present all through the place is the smell of home-cooked foods and cigars. Hank Jr. has continued his father's habit as a cigar aficionado. The bar, no matter the hour from open to close, always has patrons sitting barside and in booths along the dining room's periphery. This, perhaps, is why it always seems so welcoming. 
Without a doubt, the loyalty, not only of the bar's regulars, but also their families, has contributed to its longevity. One patron, Rosaline Thomas, at 87 years young, began coming to LNH with her father and mother when she was only four. I remember coming for perch, Rose says. Perch? Breaded in deep-fried mushrooms and cheese curds. You just can't find those anywhere else, not like you can here. <laughs> Everyone's all about making things healthy. Well, sometimes you just have to be a little naughty is all, she finishes with a smile. Another patron, Tomas Vincent, was seated with his son, daughter-in-law, and first grandchild, Samantha. Leo here, he began, motioning at his son, has become here with me since he was this high, he says, holding his hand about a meter off the ground. I used to bring him here for cribbage league. Stinker would beat me more often than not. <laughs> yeah, and now whenever me and Lee come back through Ishwabanon, Leo adds, we always stop by. Just can't beat the food or the atmosphere. Heck, some of the, these people you see sitting around here are like family to me. Asked if Lee or Leo thought such a place as LMH was a good atmosphere for a child. Leo replied, oh, it's fine. People here are always welcoming and caring. It's practically an extended family. Sammy here has uncles and aunts who look after her, and not just here either. We ever need help, and we have on occasion. I'll call up one of these people, or Dad will call someone he knows from LMH, and things are taken care of. Asked for an example, Leo said, well, there was one time when I was at school. I was driving to work, and my car breaks down. It doesn't happen much these days, and I didn't know what to do. It was at New Madison University, the Green Bay campus, you know, so a ways from here. Um, I called Dad. He gets off the line with me and makes a few calls of his own. Within ten minutes, there was a tow truck and a ride there for me. No charge, they both said, just paying it forward. That's a consistent threat in patron stories at LNH. Someone in their past helped them, and so, in an effort toward repayment, they seek to aid others however they can. Bernice Tao, a third-generation patron, tells of a story from her grandfather. Well, you know, life here always hasn't been this easy. When Ashwabadan was first coming into its own, things were still rough. Even before this place was officially opened, Hank Sr. and his wife Laura would still be out there helping people. My grandfather, his dad built their home by hand, you know, uh, told me how more than once he'd see Hank strolling through the neighborhood, doing what he could as he went, gathering people to help for the bigger jobs. Even my great-grandfather finished more than one project on his house, also the one who encouraged him to grow the home garden we still keep up today. Patron after patron says much the same thing. LNH is much less just a bar than a social club and support network. Generations of Martians, of Ashwabanonians, have continued coming to LNH for just these reasons. And while you can feel such an atmosphere about the place any day of the week, holidays bring it out in full force. As Mikab Gilroy says, oh, It's just splendid. So many people come back here during the big holidays. The best is when they've moved away someplace exotic. By that I mean where an LNHer hasn't moved yet. They always bring something back with them that first holiday that gets hung up on the bar. And at such times, the drive toward neighborliness is only amplified. Oh, of course, everybody pays the hanging tax. That's a donation to charity, so the memento can be hung at the bar. Always a big collection, always. LNH's exterior is fairly drab. It's paneling an outdated Terran tan. Inside, despite the various baubles and knick-knacks from as far away as Jamaica on Earth, the walls are their ever-same stucco eggshell off-white. The bar overall exudes an ambiance of a neighborhood pub where everyone knows you by name. All the same, as Hank Jr. says, We don't mind new faces. Come on down sometime. I'll pour you a drink same as anyone else. This next appendix uh, article, I might get through the whole thing, I might not. I'm actually going to cut this podcast off at an hour, because this is actually a longer piece as well. The chapter from episode 42, Spaceport Sheboygan, was 26 pages long. This is about 20. It is the report that James Hall wrote when he was in college. So this is the actual report. 
another thing to mention as I'm going through this is I have sources and we'll get to the sources for this report but there are inline sources this is done in a Chicago Turabian sort of style I think oh it might it might be done in a uh, in, in a different style yeah Chicago Turabian would be anyway sorry back on point um, there will be sources cited in line in the paper so that's definitely not Chicago Turabian um, so I'm going to cite those as I go along so that if you really care to you could actually go through listen to the other appendix material the sources for this report and then actually see where those come from so again this is appendix B a hero's report title page report on the influence of Atmo on Terran history subtitle a hero's report James Tiberius Hall 923 2527. All Terrans have at least a passive knowledge of the War of Insurrection, though for most that knowledge goes no deeper than the World Wars of Earth. Even so, some facts about the War of Insurrection, commonly called the War of Noble Cause, are still pervasive. For instance, common knowledge holds that the war cost the lives of some 500,000 fighting men and women from both sides. It also still holds Pardon me. It is also still remembered by most the names of the opposing sides in the war, Chaos and the Terran Defense Force, or TDF. Contemporary history, though, has begun to blur the lines between these two behemoth forces and has all but forgotten any information on the individuals who participated in the war. The reason for this, a consequence of the war, will be discussed at the end of this paper. Its bulk, though, consists of a historically accurate account of the war pulled from documents, letters, opines, and news reports, as well as the unofficial oral history. In doing so, this paper refreshes and preserves a true telling of the history of the War of Insurrection, one that is in the process of being repressed and forgotten. Section Heading NAR Defense, Atmo Personnel, and Government Ties any retelling of the War of Insurrection must begin with the founding of NAR defense. Little yet exists in the way of information about NAR, most having already been collected and dealt with by earlier campaigns of the Department of Censorship. With certainty, NAR defense was founded by James Christopher, Melinda Christopher, Eric Pullman, and Adam Green. In its charter, NAR defense set out to be more of a scientific community wherein all who were part of it mutually benefited from its work and research that strove for the greater good. The charter mentions that NAR will never outgrow its ability to be self-sufficient. Source, NAR Defense Charter 1. In this regard, NAR Defense seems to have been successful. Due to the lack of a date, it is not known for certain the timing of the expansion memo as relative to the reply to the US DOD, Department of Defense. However, the reply shows that NAR Defense contracted with the government of the United States of America during the post-coalition war through insurrection period. In the reply, James Christopher thanks a general by the name of Amy Henshaw for a fighter jet contract. Source, NAR reply to USDOD. To put this in perspective, at a time when a yearly salary was, on average, $45,000 U.S., roughly 225000 standard today, each aircraft they were awarded to produce would have cost at least $175 million U.S., with 75 such aircraft having been ordered for each of the four aircraft carriers, uh, floating airports that roamed Earth's oceans. Source, Museum Ship USS Bill Clinton. That amounts to a minimum total price tag of 5 uh, pardon me, $52.5 trillion U.S. for the contract. Assumedly, after the awarding of the contract, James Christopher sent out a memo to all NAR employees alerting them of the pending contract and subsequent company expansion. Source, expansion memo, NAR defense. With a contract awarded that would total $262.5 trillion standard today, they would no doubt have had the capital to expand their facilities. 
The important point in all of this is not the money spent on weapons of war, but rather in the growth over the time frame of NAR defense, along with the relationship it, re it implies with a government of Earth. In but three years, NAR defense went from an upstart company to one providing and benefiting from a sizable and substantial government contract. Such a growth speaks not only to the success of the company, but also the quality and ingenuity of its people. Nardefense was such a group of people, such a community of researchers and developers, machinists and fabricators, as to build its company into a market power in less time than any corporate company in existence today. What is of further interest in the expansion memo is its indication that more military consultants were being brought into the company. Source. Expansion Memo, NAR Defense. What is so significant about this is that Dandre Fremen, staff officer of ATMO, filed an after-action report with NAR. The report, whose subject line lists action of 20 June 2035, source Fremen, without doubt refers to the rescue of a group of U.S. senators from Tripoli, Libya, as reported in the article Dramatic Rescue. Source, Dramatic Rescue 1. Between the two sources, Dandre Fremen, Meng Tao, and another Atmo staff officer, Jessica Brune, are tied to NAR defense. It is reasonable, therefore, to assume that they were either brought onto the NAR staff as of the expansion memo, if not previous to it. Either way, the suspected direct tie between Atmo and NAR defense is confirmed, a contradiction to the findings of the Walker Commission, source, Walker Commission 2, discussed below. Also important to note is the clear relationship expressed in the Dramatic Rescue article, as well as the report of General Henshaw to President Taylor, between ATMO and the Government of the United States, source Henshaw, still largely a leader of politics on Earth at that time in history. It is important to note, as it creates a link for how the type of relationship shared by the United States, U.S., government, and NAR defense, and later by ATMO, would have also been shared with the TDF, as NAR was its largest supplier and ATMO its foundation. Section Header Evolution to the TDF This basic relationship established, it is easy to see how events might have progressed to the founding of the TDF. NAR defense, being well endowed by the government contracts, could have helped build up and supply ATMO, which, in turn, expanded to such a degree that the only logical step for the Terran government was to legally recognize it. The date for the official founding and recognition of the TDF as Earth's sole armed military force is well known, it being preserved at the outset of A Child's Guide of the War of Noble Cause as its basis of comparison. Source, Ministry of Censorship. That date, 12 October 2022, marks a turning point in human history, one after which all professional military operations were taken out of the hands of nation governments and put entirely under the auspices of the global Terran government of Earth. Herein is the importance of understanding that pre-existing relationships of NAR defense and ATMO with various Terran governments as the leaders of the TDF. In fact, all of its top eight staff officers came from both NAR and ATMO, as was alluded to above and will be presented shortly. In seeing this, one can easily understand how the relationship of the U.S. Army General Amy Henshaw to ATMO and the trust implicit therein, source, Henshaw II, would transfer over to the TDF. The import of this is easily read, even from a child's guide, wherein, on page 3, the book states that the people in charge of the TDF lied to the government and made them believe things that weren't true. They told the people in government that everything in the country of Colombia was okay. Not knowing the people of the TDF well, the government had to take them at their word. Source, Ministry of Censorship While this author agrees that the global government would, indeed, have had to take the leaders of the TDF at their word regarding events occurring in Colombia, the leadership of the TDF was well known to high government officials by this time. As such, there is little chance that government officials of the time would have been deceived into believing false reports on Colombia. 
For further evidence of such a claim, one needs look no further than the 60 Minutes interview of Melinda Christopher by Katie Ralston. Therein, not only does Melinda state that the eight progenitors, her, her husband James Christopher, Eric Pullman, Adam Green, Meng Tao, Dandre Fremen, Jessica Brune, and Claire Jakes, had worked together for some time, but James Christopher in the interview excuses himself as he has a meeting with General Henshaw. Source, 60 Minutes Interview with Katie Ralston. The ties are there as plainly as the dispositions of James and Melinda Christopher, which come through in the interview. Despite how A Child's Guide portrays the TDF staff officers, it is clear that James and Melinda Christopher, at least, were genuine people. Melinda, for instance, talks about her Nobel Prize during her interview. Source, 60 Minutes Interview with Katie Ralston. These were people that the government could and did trust. While the exact events occurring in Colombia remain unknown, which in large part dictates how said events are presented in a child's guide, the results are known. Section Heading Rise of Chaos Out of Colombia grew a powerful military leader, apparently a TDF officer. Known by the name Chaos, he was the leader of the forces that rose up and opposed the TDF and the global government. These forces are known to have been sent worldwide in their quest of domination. It is, however, Chaos's campaign in the Americas that formed the crux, the linchpin, of his whole movement. As his campaign in the Americas did well, so too did his campaign elsewhere, gaining corresponding momentum from his triumphs and subsequent confidence. Once he was stopped in the United States, his campaigns elsewhere lost their initiative and drive. The Empire of Japan, an antagonist in World War II on Earth, reacted similarly when one considers the Americans, citizens of the United States, as Chaos's home territory. The Japanese, as long as their advances in general were working, were daring in those advances. However, after their attacks on the United States naval base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, a small task force was able to launch an aerial assault directly against mainland Japan, deep at the heart of her conquered territories. From that point onward, Japan's entire approach to war changed. They turned defensive and ceased most, if not all, offensive movements. Chaos likewise changed his tactics after two particular battles in the United States. The first, the Battle of Chicago, set Chaos's forces on their heels as the Japanese had been after the American task force pierced through to their heart. The second, the Battle of Thermopylae, signaled the end of Chaos's offensive American campaign, a shifting of his for forces onto the Eurasian continent and direct assault on the Terran government seat of power. Though with greatly and increasingly diminished ranks, he became desperate. Such is but an overview of the two turning points of Chaos's campaign in the Americas. What follows are the details. After the events in Colombia that brought him to power, Chaos systematically conquered, or as a child's guide put it, liberated, source, Ministry of Censorship, all of Latin America from El Cono Sur to the Mexico-United States border. There, as is known from the emails of Polcat361, Tommy Brewer, and the interviews both of Tommy's squad by Julia Leist, as well as of James Christopher by Scott Gellert, Chaos's forces and those of the TDF formed skirmish lines and dug in for a nearly two-month wait. Source, 12 August 2045, 24 October 2045. Both armies massed forces on either side of the border, preparing for the battle to come. Based on Tommy's letter of 24 October 2045 and the information contained at the end of Julia Lice's interview, source from the front lines with Julia Leist, historians can reliably say that Chaos initiated his attack against the TDF lines on 23 October 2045 and broke through along the southeastern end of those lines. Source, 24 October 2045. Further, based on time date information gathered from James Christopher's interview, historians can further pin down the time to around 6.42 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Source, Evening News with Scott Gellert, 
This represents the beginning of the bloodiest part of the War of Insurrection. Prior to this point, few casualties were recorded, the reason remaining unknown. Chaos pushed his advance far enough northward to gain a foothold in the warmer southern states of the United States, those bordering Texas to the north and east. Here he held until April of 2046, apparently taking his cue from first Napoleon Bonaparte's defeat by weather in Russia, as well as Adolf Hitler's in the same region and climate. This is reinforced in one of Tommy's messages wherein he relates how his TDF platoon officer told him that Chaos had waited so long not only to build his forces, but also to wait out the Midwestern winter. Source, 13 April, 2046. The TDF forces, apparently due to the size of Chaos's advance, fell into full retreat, intending clearly to make their stand south of the Wisconsin border around Chicago. Section Header Battle of Chicago Here's another reason why the comprehension of both NAR and ATMO as the TDF space is important. No significant ports, whether air, sea, or sky, existed then in the Midwest. There was no strategically important resources of precious materials, no industries that were vital to the war effort, and no major houses of national or global government along Chaos's path of advance northward. However, the homes of both NAR Defense and ATMO lay in Wisconsin along its eastern edge. While a child's guide prevents the advance as an attempt to cut the TDF forces in half, source, Ministry of Censorship, a closer analysis leads to the conclusion that chaos, as had the United States the Japanese, was trying for the TDF's heart. Knowing this would have driven the TDF, under threat of heavy attack, to pull back and dig in defensively somewhere south of Wisconsin directly in the path of chaos's advance. The major roadways of the United States, then, dictated where the advance would come, to Chicago, up along Interstate 55 to the outskirts of the greater Chicagoland area, and then along Interstate 94, along that corridor north, onto Interstate 43, which leads directly into the heart of the home of both NAR Defense and ATMO, the TDF's heart and soul. This, then, is how history was delivered to Chicago's doorstep. While some of the TDF forces had to be retreated due to the action in their sectors, others, such as Corporal Brewer's company, were withdrawn for the express purpose of creating and reinforcing the lines south of Chicago. 13 April, source, 13 April, 2046. Also in the historical records is the response of the city of Chicago to the impending attack. After Chaos's intentions for Chicago were clear, Total and utter destruction. Source, Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. Mayor Daly called upon the residents of Chicago to join in the defense of their city. This much, at least, is accurately reported in the Ministry of Censorship's A Child's Guide. All able-bodied personnel were mobilized into militias, some serving as ammunition carriers, some with experience and training as line fighters, more yet reinforced the Chicago police in maintaining order in their city. The TDF also called all available ground forces, staff officers included, to the Chicago front from everywhere within a 600-mile radius. In the words of Eric Pullman, we've pulled out all the stops. Every resource we can bring to bear here, we have. Source, Darkest Hour with Scott Keller and Katie Ralston. The Battle of Chicago either way it turned out, would be a turning point in the war. With all TDF staff officers there assembled, it could have meant an end, if not a mortal blow to the TDF. However, despite having their air forces crippled, or at least depleted, during the course of Chaos's march northward, the TDF mustered enough air power to turn the tide of the battle. The tool that broke the back of Chaos's forces and cleared the way for further air sorties was a new and yet unseen stealth aircraft. As the battle raged on into the night, one that became darkly overcast, Chaos's forces, a 
apparently unable to see the planes on radar, used old-fashioned searchlights to try and spot them out for the anti-aircraft batteries. As reported by Scott Gellert, though, that attempt failed. All of Chaos's defenses against air power were destroyed, his lines becoming easy targets for the support craft scrambled from airports and bases all around the Midwest. Source. Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. In reviewing the Darkest Hour footage to this point, one finds oneself confronted by a familiar name. Amy Henshaw. Introduced in the video as Major General in the TDF. Source. Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. This piece of the artifact once again reinforces the pre-existing relationship between governmental agencies and the TDF. In her interview with Katie Ralston, Henshaw reports that some 100,000 troops, militia, and TDF elite were engaged at the Battle of Chicago. Source, Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. As the coverage continues, one sees how chaos, despite losing the Battle of Chicago, does his best to keep his promise of destruction for Chicago. In the wake of his retreating troops, so driven by the overwhelming air power of the TDF, Chaos's forces leave in their wake buildings of all sorts rigged with explosives. Thanks to, preemptor, or, thanks to preemptory evacuations, source, Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston, no civilians were caught in the ensuing destruction. As would any commander, those of the TDF sent their troops after the retreating forces of Chaos. As is captured in the video, this is when Chaos sprang his trap. Houses, apartment buildings, and places of business were used as landmines, though of horrific size. In his message of the next day, Corporal Brewer describes how one such explosion took out half of Abel Company, source, 7 May 2046, a loss of over 100 troops. In the final analysis of the Battle of Chicago, if the ending still on the video is to be believed, over 83,000 troops from both sides were killed or wounded. At least another 6,300 went missing in action. Source. Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. Of the 100,000 or so total troops engaged at Chicago, this represents over 90% as injured KIA MIA. In addition to the troop losses, the still frame reports a loss of some 5,375 homes and apartments, displacing an estimated 24,188 people, in addition to the loss by destruction of some 135 businesses. Source, Darkest Hour with Scott Gellert and Katie Ralston. Thus, it is easy to see why Chicago was the turning point in the War of Insurrection in more way than one. After the loss of so many troops, both sides, though especially chaos, having lost over 80% of its attacking strength, would be a long time recovering. There was yet a greater, deeper impact of the Battle of Chicago, one felt in the realm of public opinion. With a cost of some $60 billion U.S., the battle was a major financial setback for the suburbs of Chicago, the state of Illinois, the United States of America, and even the global Terran government. For, even a year later, people lived as refugees in their own city, homeless and existing where they could. Source, 3 May, 2047. Such is already enough of a public relations issue, one only compounded by a further fact. Chaos's army used whatever gun fodder it could find. This fact, conveniently left out of a child's guide, is why the TDF began to be called baby killers. In the words of then Sergeant Tommy Brewer, it's not our fault that Chaos's forces are made up of so many young people. I've seen some in battle who look to be no more than 13. Source, 3 May, 2047. Only days after the battle was over, civilian opines began appearing in local papers, twisting the facts. During the Chicago campaign, not only did they enlist the help of every able-bodied citizens of Chicago, but those also who were aged 13 to 17, but also slew several hundred children. Source, 
baby killers. The important facts to remember here are, first, the TDF recruited help in the defense of Chicago, help children would have been physically incapable to supply. Second, in the words of Sergeant Brewer, it's hard, but when they're coming at you, barrel-level bullets flying. Source, 3 May, 2047. Chaos used anybody he could gain control over as troops, thus forcing the TDF to kill them. Can a soldier truly be blamed for the acts of self-preservation as forced on him by the enemy? More yet, though, a follow-up opine by the same author continues the chain of misleading information. Therein, the author, Gary2457, quotes the casualty and MIA figures for the Battle of Chicago as a way of expressing the brutality of the TDF forces, likening them to slaughterhouse butchers. Source, slaughterhouse butchers. One must remember, when reading such opines, though, that had Chaos not brought those troops to bear on Chicago, had he not recruited them in the first place, they would not have died. Not even Child's Guide distorts the fact that Chaos was the aggressor at Chicago. Source, Ministry of Censorship. This author is not attempting to solely saddle Chaos with the responsibility for the outcome of Chicago, nor even for the entire war, but merely points out that he must share in it. As one final example of the type of, at times misinformed, disinformation that first emerged after Chicago, consider the, consider the article entitled Walking About Barefoot by John 316. Therein, the author claims that members of the TDF must believe themselves divine, evidenced by how they walk around barefoot, even on the battlefield. He backs this claim with an apparent fact that the Olympian gods of ancient Greece walked around barefoot as well. Source, John 3.16 By way of historical correction, this simply is not true. Consider the messenger of the gods, Hermes, who wore winged sandals. Rather ironically for a man whose pseudonym is an allusion to Christendom, the author confused his references. It was, after all, the rise of Christianity that people began shown as no longer mortal by the lack of footwear. A yet existing example is the famous poster of the 1960s rock and roll band, The Beatles, for their Abbey Road album. Therein, one Beatle walks barefoot, which people took to mean that he was deceased. Source, Paul is dead. The purpose of pointing this out is that even when such attempts at propaganda against the TDF were misinformed, they were nonetheless effective. Starting after Chicago, there was a concerted effort to use propaganda to turn public opinion against the TDF, an attempt that is believed to have been successful, at least by hearers, in leading to the exile decree of 7 July 2050. Section Header Battle of Thermopylae, Atmo Underground and Beyond Turning this paper's attention back to the physical machinations of the War of Insurrection, it must rely heavily on the messages of Sergeant Tommy Brewer to bridge the gap between Chicago and the TDF's exile. One event that can be independently confirmed by a child's guide is the Battle of Thermopylae, mentioned in Brewer's message of 3 May 2047 and occurring on 4 May 2047. Source, Ministry of Censorship. This battle, perhaps the only battle besides Chicago that is known by name, is where Eric Pullman was imbued with his title, Hero of Thermopylae. Consequently, this battle is also where the hero movement gained its name. For the uninitiated, while much circumstantial and oral history remains of Thermopylae, very little remains in the way of accounts, recordings, or other artifacts. It was in attempting to research and recover events of the, the battle that historians first began their quest to preserve the real history of the insurrection. As a consequence, they were the first hearers of the so-called Atmo Underground. This name derives from the fact that, at the time, no connection was known to exist linking NAR defense to the TDF. Hence, the historians named their movement after what was considered the base element of the TDF, Atmo but this author once more digresses. 
In Sergeant Brewer's letter of 5 July 2047, he states how his battalion is being redeployed to southern Illinois to help try to push and retake Arkansas. Source, 5 July 2047. By this account, one sees that after Chicago, the TDF forces were able to again assume the offensive. By the end of May, Brewer's battalion would be in Arkansas. In his letter of 14 August 2047, Brewer indicates that chaos was in retreat during the Arkansas campaign. Believably, Brewer cites Thermopylae as a major motivator in this. Source, 14 August 2047. Such agrees with oral history, which holds that one of Chaos's most trusted generals was defeated there, a loss that affected his will to fight, at least in America. Sergeant Brewer's next message of 11 September 2047 puts him back at the Oklahoma-Texas border. Two facts of this letter are significant enough for their own asides. First, Brewer reports that Chaos's forces attack in bonsai-like fashion, rushing headlong at their enemy with no regard for their own person. He also describes the wounds persons in such attacks are able to sustain before being brought down. I could see she was hit several times, the wounds flowing blood. She seemed not to notice. Source, 11 September 2047. The woman he describes was a member of Chaos's black band. The origins of this name remain unknown. What is known via oral history is that those forces were used against the TDF starting sometime after Chicago, but before Thermopylae. They were rabid fighters, most often described as being under a spell of bloodlust. Source, 11 September, 2047. The black band forces of chaos were also known for another trait, fighting to the last man. No member of a black band unit is known to ever have survived an engagement. This then brings about the second aside, the mental cost of the war for the TDF troops. While engaged in battle at the Oklahoma-Texas border, Sergeant Brewer comes face to face with a member of the black band and his fiancée, Emily Schmidt. No summation can do justice to Brewer's own words. This author simply encourages the reader to experience them for his or her own self. See Appendix C, Polecat Messages, September 22, 2047. Section Header, Psychological Impact The War of Insurrection was global in scope. As Chaos conquered, he recruited and brainwashed people into his forces. The insurrection literally pitted friend against friend, relative against relative, lover against lover. The psychological toll of the insurrection is nearly never addressed. Understandably, it is absent from a child's guide. Nonetheless, the insurrection as a whole, especially in psychological terms, can perhaps be best related in Brewer's own words. This war has been such a horrifyingly exhilarating adventure until now. It was always someone else's city, someone else's home, someone else's brother or sister being killed, not anymore. God, I'm beginning to hate this war. Source, 11 September, 2047. What the propaganda efforts started after Chicago failed to do, the ways of combat late in the insurrection made up for. As the war continued to worsen for Chaos's forces, his tactics changed once more. While his forces were completely unable to stem the tide of the TDF advance, they spent themselves in an attempt to wreck the highest cost for every meter of ground lost. In the words of then Staff Sergeant Brewer in his message home of 20 December 2047, When we started on this campaign, it was still civil, as much as war as can be. Either our side or theirs retreated after battles. Now, though, we've been forced to massacre every troop chaos is sent against us. It's like they're driven by some inner demons to total, total self-destruction. And not just the black band, either. They all have the same wild expression on their face. As Emily did. Of total self-disregard. Source, 20 December 2047. Another continuing trend is extant in Brewer's letter 
that of his continued dislike of and disgust with the war. We're still losing good people. The cracks are starting to show. Reinforcements and replacements are coming slower. I... I don't know if we'll be redeployed over there, to Eurasia. Authors edit. But would be just as happy if we weren't. Source. 20 December, 2047. The difference, of course, between Staff Sergeant Brewer's dislike of the war and that built up by the propagandists is that Brewer's is an honest, true dislike of the realities of war. He's seeing the full impact of the war as it unfolds, its bloody cost. This, the reader may recall, is one of the oft-given reasons for why information about the insurrection is controlled by the Ministry of Censorship. That is, in the words of Professor Hume on a recent broadcast of Forward Progress, If we can control history, we can prevent its repetition. Forward pro source, Forward Progress with Tariq Smith. They seek to prevent another such holocaust by denying its very existence, its lessons. In Brewer's letter of 20 December 2047, he states that chaos and the TDF are now focusing their efforts over in Eurasia and around the Mediterranean. Source, 20 December 2047. Despite this, as late as 3 May 2048, Staff Sergeant Brewer's company was yet deployed in the Americas. It's actually been a little fun, our time in Mexico the last few weeks. As you know, the TDF forces landed in South America last month. They've been pushing north fairly steadily. It's felt that we have the Americas under firm control, states Brewer in his message of 3 May 2048. By June of the same year, however, Brewer has been redeployed to the Eurasian theater. Several facts worth mentioning, worth pointing out, arise from Brewer's message home of 10 June 2048. First, Brewer describes a change once more in the tactics being used by Chaos's forces. They once more begin to act civil, as Brewer had called it in a previous message. Source, 10 December, 2047. That is, Cass's forces were once more retreating. Source, 10 June, 2048. Additionally, and perhaps more importantly, Brewer mentioned his battalion was consolidated from six companies to three. Source, 10 June, 2048. While it is not clear in Brewer's message what led to the consolidation, few possibilities exist. Either companies were transferred out of Brewer's battalion or, more likely, with his mention in the same letter of yet high casualty figures, companies in the battalion became so depleted that by force of numbers they no longer were at company strength. While this author could find no such evidence yet extant, the consolidation of companies in a battalion in Brewer's letter of 10 June 2048, in combination with his statement of 20 December 2047, that reinforcements and replacements are coming slower, as well as the known success of the propaganda campaign against the TDF by this point in the war, suggests that, as the TDF was all volunteer to begin with, public support of the war had turned a corner. Section header. The tide turns. Casualties weren't being replaced by new troops. No one was volunteering. Or at least, not enough were to overcome the casualty rate. Either way, a further point emerges from this realization. Since the TDF was the military of the global government, and as in the constitution of the Terran government, there to this day exist provisions for the enacting of a draft of forces for a military, source, constitution of the Terran Union, it can be assumed that either the government saw no need for a draft as though it was in hand, or that its political footing no longer would support such a draft for a war that had already cost so much both monetarily and in lives of Earth's citizenry. As from the oral histories, we know that there were yet breakthroughs in Eurasia after Brewer was redeployed. It is unlikely that the government failed to see a need for a draft. Rather, and more likely, a concerted effort, beginning after Chicago as herein presented, had gained enough voice to persuade those in power to no longer interfere with the war. As it seems likely that this is the case, it is also reasonable to assume that the relationship between the TDF and the government, one that had begun and continued on a firm footing for years, 
had started to sour. The situation, even as the TDF took ground in Europe, continued to deteriorate. In a letter dated 12 August 2048, Brewer mentions that our battalion was consolidated with another this week. Between the two of us, we have five companies worth of troops. Source, 12 August 2048. Assuming both battalions were initially fully crewed, having perhaps 1,600 troops apiece in seven companies per battalion, a total of 3,200 troops, being down to five companies means that there were no more than approximately 1,150 troops of 3,200, nearly a two-thirds loss. While 66% casualties is not the 80% of the Battle of Chicago, it is still significant. Moreover, yet, Brewer describes a scene that has been entirely erased from the historical record of the insurrection. We came into a town today, somewhere in France. It had simply been burned to cinders. A few people were sifting through the rubble. They started cursing us out as we approached. They said that Chaos's forces had come through two days prior, rounded everyone up, grabbed who they could, and then burned the rest in the town's gymnasium. These few had been in the hills above the town when it happened. Source, 12 August, 2048. This passage serves to reconfirm those pieces of the oral history of the insurrection regarding, and already related in this paper, how Chaos would forcibly recruit from conquered towns. The truly shocking part that has been erased from history is the fate of those not taken. Death. Brewer also describes his growing understanding of the public's distaste for the TDF. They're cursing us not for being there to help. We're the Terran Defense Force, and they... They're Terran. Source, 12 August, 2048. This author once more restates the impact of such sentiment on TDF government relations, but by now it is quite clear even to Brewer. In his message home of 25 November 2048, Brewer describes first the further loss of manpower in his dwindling battalion. Three companies from five. Source, 25 November 2048. For the two merged battalions, that leaves at most 675 of an original complement of 3,200. At those numbers, the casualty rate would have been 78.9%, almost that of Chaos's forces at Chicago. Brewer also mentions the almost palpable presence of the anti-TDF propaganda. Despite being located away from major cities, people are going out of their way to come out to the base and harass us. I just don't understand where this is all coming from. I've seen some anti-TDF sentiment grow over the last three years, but it just seems to be exploding now. Source, 25 November, 2048. Taken as a whole, it seems that, as the military side of the war grew smaller, the propaganda side grew larger. While precious few examples of such propaganda survived, its effects are quite clear. By 25 November, 2048, still some 15 months away from Exile Day, and only five months away from the date of the final battle of the war. Taking into consideration that Brewer had killed his fiancée, Emily Schmidt, in battle, the propaganda war no doubt had more bearing on what Brewer relates in his letter of 20 February 2049. What in God's name would possess the man? Authors edit Emily's father to set the car on fire, let alone with all of you in it. We're out here fighting for freedom, for everything back home, and then there's this. Source, 20 February, 2049. Doing such a thing is simply unfathomable this day and age. The intent of the action is clear. Kill the family of the TDF soldier who killed his daughter. The War of Insurrection began as a war that literally pitted neighbor against neighbor, friend against friend, family against family. The propaganda began after Chicago had come into full bloom. Even as Chaos's forces lost the war militarily, they were winning support and, so, civilian fighters across the globe. What Chaos had failed to do at Sword Point, he did at Pen Tip. Even so, losses on the battlefield continued to mount. 
Last week, our already hybrid battalion was again consolidated. Four companies out of what had at one time been five battalions. Four companies out of a division! Source, 20 February, 2049. In round numbers, this translates to roughly 900 surviving troops of 15,000. That comes out to a 94% casualty rate, the large bulk of those KIAs, as they clearly weren't being cycled back to their units after recovering from their wounds. Allowing such a casualty rate raises two pertinent questions. First, why would the government allow such a casualty rate when certainly a fresh infusion of troops would have helped lower it? More TDF troops would mean more of a numerical advantage in battle and so a greater probability of swift victories. Less time on the battlefield equates to fewer casualties by exposing people to incoming enemy fire for less time. Was the government feeling the pressure of the propaganda war growing, simply hoping that the TDF and Chaos's forces would mutually destroy each other, thus killing two birds with one stone? The second question is as difficult to answer. Why would the TDF leadership allow casualty figures to climb so high? At this point, I'm just going to take a break, check how much is left, and it is a fair amount, so I'm actually going to cut this podcast, this episode, right there with the next section, End of Combat. I do apologize, this is breaking the report in half, but... I do want to keep episodes to about an hour, and I'm not so concerned keeping the appendix material together as I was the chapters. So with that, we're going to take a break here this week. This is in the middle of um, of James Hall's report, a hero's report, and we will pick up here in the middle of the report at the section end of combat next week, and then we will start going into some of the sources and the other appendices. And yes, if you're wondering to yourself, which I'm sure nobody is, I did write all of the sources for the paper just for the sake of being thorough. Alright, that does it for us this week. If you're enjoying this podcast, if somebody handed it to you, I would encourage you to, again, Listen to all the previous episodes. You can do that by heading over to iTunes or through your favorite podcast app and search for Chris Reed's book or Chris Pullman. That would be me. Either way, you can find this podcast. You can subscribe and download any previous episodes. If you don't do the whole podcast thing, you can head on over to narclaninc.com slash book. And you'll be taken to a page where you can download the raw MP3 files of this podcast. So you can download them onto an MP3 player, listen to them that way. They're available to you there. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to stay current with any episodes, I always post uh, out there on Facebook and Twitter when I publish a new episode. So if you go over to narclaninc.com, I have links there to my social media pages, to my Facebook and my Twitter account. And you can also email me directly at Chris Reed's book, that's singular book, not books, Chris Reed's book at narclaninc.com. Email me, that will come right to my inbox. I will read all of those. If I get enough emails, I'll do a mailbag episode and do my best to answer all of your questions. In the meantime, if you are enjoying this podcast, the best thing you could do to help me grow it would be to share it with a friend, a family member, a coworker. That way, you're helping me spread my podcast and helping me gain an audience for the actual print version of this book. Because again, this is me reading my first novel, Mystery and Deceit from Earth to Mars. A side note, if you do search for Chris Pullman on iTunes or your favorite podcast app, you'll probably also come across another podcast called Whiskey and Mash, also with Gloria Ackerman, my mother-in-law. We sit down every week, watch two episodes of the TV show Mash, 
talk about a character from uh, the show, and then review the episodes. It's a fun podcast. I highly encourage you to listen to it. You don't need to know anything about the TV show MASH in order to enjoy it. Uh, If you do listen to that podcast and you are intrigued about MASH, it is available, the whole series, on Netflix. You can listen along with us there. But that's enough out of me. This has been longer than an hour at this point. So with that, I will say thank you for coming back, for listening to this episode, for sharing it with somebody else. And I will see you back here next week.